listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured, episode 224. In this episode, crisis averted at the New Yorker. We'll talk to an organizer about the strike that almost happened. But first, the news. Earlier this year, a group of food delivery workers took to the streets of New York City on their bikes to rally in defense of their labor rights. They were tired of being exploited by the food delivery platforms like DoorDash that they relied on to pick up delivery gigs for local restaurants. It's grueling work with erratic, low pay. Many workers have complained that the algorithms that dictate their jobs end up shorting them on their earnings. Los Deliveristas Unidos emerged from the organizing efforts during the pandemic that began on WhatsApp and expanded to immigrant communities across the city. And with the support of the local Worker Center Workers Justice Project, the group has been mobilizing many of the city's estimated 80,000 app-based delivery workers. Many of them are immigrants from Central America and Mexico, and they live hand-to-mouth riding their electric bikes all day, often braving the danger of getting robbed of their bikes on the street. One of the events that helped spark their activism, in fact, was the fatal shooting of 29-year-old Francisco Vialva in a bike robbery in East Harlem earlier this year. This week, at a rally at City Hall, Los Deliveristas announced six key policy demands for the city. These include requiring all restaurants to provide access to bathrooms for delivery workers as they are picking up deliveries, requiring third-party delivery platforms to pay workers at least once a week with at least one non-bank payment option, requiring platforms to allow delivery workers to set a maximum distance for their orders and ensure that workers won't be penalized for rejecting orders outside of their distance limitations, requiring that the city establish minimum per-trip payments for delivery workers, excluding tips, requiring that third-party delivery platforms supply insulated delivery bags to workers for free. Currently, they have to pay for a lot of that stuff. And requiring that businesses and restaurants Disclose how much of each gratuity goes to a delivery worker. Also, how gratuities are distributed to delivery workers and how much is used to cover the worker's base wage. This is often unknown to customers. These demands have been incorporated into several legislative proposals that are being introduced in the city council. I spoke with Lija Gualpa, executive director of the Workers' Justice Project, about these demands and what the next steps are for their movement. So Los Deliveristas Unidos, along with Workers' Justice Project, have put six landmark policies that will be New York's opportunity to set example for the rest of the country on how we protect and honor frontline workers, particularly food delivery workers um, who have been essential to the city's recovery. Um, Over the past year, Deliveristas have um, been denied access to bathrooms, have been facing inhumane treatment, assault, abuse, wage theft, bike theft, um, unfair um, deactivation with no justification. So what workers have been putting is a six landmark demands uh, policies that will regulate this industry, such as uh, mandating access to bathrooms, um, having um, the apps to provide non-banking payment options, um, to prevent wage theft, um, allowing delivery workers to, to have the right to set maximum distances in order to prevent um, from traveling and risking their lives when they're doing this delivery um, work. Um, they also requiring a, a to establish a minimum payment per trip um, and requiring 
um, the apps to provide personal protective equipment, and also transparency when it comes to tips. These six demands are just a first set of, of regulations that Los Deliveristas Unidos um, are, are trying to set in an industry that it's um, unregulated um, and where they're, they have no rights as workers um, because they're classified as independent contractors. So as uh, Los Deliveristas, what trying to do is like rewrite, um, actually write basic protections for, a, for the gig economy which has been operating and profiting from workers who are doing this work with no protections. So this is like the opportunity um, for New York City to protect and honor the labor of immigrant workers. And rather than going back to normal, reopening should be lifting up those who are already left behind um, before the pandemic and who had really bared the worst of the crisis and the app-based delivery industry is clearly not going anywhere. And it's even expanding beyond restaurants. Now workers are delivering groceries, medicine, and other essential products. Um, and we feel that this is this first set of legislation levels the playing field and protects the dignity and the humanity of the city's most essential workers, like food delivery workers. I know that there have been serious uh, safety concerns uh, that the delivery workers have discussed in terms of um, getting robbed at gunpoint. Do these demands help address any of those safety concerns or is that something separate? It does address some of the concerns, um, but also requires a set. They're they're developing a separate strategy to address as well. um, the safety issue in the crimes and the violence that they're facing in the streets, because they're not only delivery workers are not only being abused and and exploited by the apps, but they're also victims of different crimes while they're they're doing this work in the streets. So the distance setting up a limit to the distances is key because a lot of these crimes and the violence that they're facing is because they have to travel to dangerous parts of the city to do food delivery. Um, and being able to deny some of these deliveries without being deactivated, it means the opportunity for them to have more control of where they go, how far they're willing to travel, um, and actually prevent them from taking the risks that it's unnecessary in order to do this work um, in the city of New York. And a separate strategy that workers um, are building up is building self-defense committees um, to make sure that workers, while they're doing this delivery work, they're protecting and building solidarity in order to prevent um, uh, being assaulted or protecting each other. And the second strategy is like um, food delivery workers want to be able to address this um, crime crisis that they're facing in the streets by building a uh, plan that engages the community, that engages NYPD, that engages in the different agencies such as um, DOT, which is um, 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 the accident to be able to address the crimes uh, with traffic and other agencies um, in how um, crime is addressed 
holistically because crime is not only affecting food delivery workers, um, but impacting the community and how we, how um, the agencies are engaged in a way that it's it's it, it creates safety um, and not more policing um, into this neighborhood. And lastly, do you think that this will be a model maybe for other cities? Have, um, have you been talking to delivery workers in, you know, in other cities that, uh, that use the same platforms? And um, are maybe other city councils looking to take on some of this type of legislation? Yeah, this is the first set of legislation that is being put forward, not only in the city, but in the country in a attempt to regulate the app-based food delivery industry. Um, and we strongly feel that if we're able to put actually pass these six landmark policies is an opportunity um, to protect workers, but also to be example um, for other cities. The Liberistas are looking forward to um, not only building their power in New York City, expanding it through the state, but building solidarity with food delivery workers across the country. That was Lija Walpa, Executive Director of the Workers' Justice Project. This week, I wanted to talk about something that the internet brought across my path. We may have to take this with a little bit of a grain of salt because it's not like American outlets reporting on China and particularly on Chinese workers are known for their great work. But Business Insider had a piece titled, More and More Chinese 20-somethings are rejecting the rat race and lying flat after watching their friends work themselves to death. And predictably, I am fascinated. The article begins, quote, It is 8 a.m. in Shanghai. Scores of office workers are pouring into the dizzying network of the city's metro lines, toting heavy briefcases and steaming cups of coffee. Meanwhile, Jiyun Zhang, 27, is tucking himself into bed. 8 a.m. means it's time to lie down, Zhang told Insider. Though I don't have a job to go to, so I can lie down anytime. It's great. End quote. Apparently, lying flat is a new movement, a, quote, mindset, a lifestyle, and a personal choice for some disillusioned Chinese youth who have given up on the rat race and are staging a quiet rebellion against the trials of 996 work culture, end quote. 996 is the expectation that you will work from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week, which makes our awful American schedules, about which more later on this episode, even seem kind of pleasant. Legally, Chinese policy supposedly dictates an eight-hour day, but in practice, those days are obviously getting longer, and China's business class expects long hours, including elites like Jack Ma of e-commerce company Alibaba, who once posted, quote, if we find things we like, 996 is not a problem. If you don't like your work, every minute is torture. Yeah. Agreed, I guess, other than the 996 part. There have, of course, been literal recorded deaths from overwork recently. So, lying flat. The anonymous author of the Lying Flat Manifesto wrote, quote, Since there has never been an ideological trend exalting human subjectivity in our land, I shall create one for myself. Lying down is my wise man's movement. Only by lying down can humans become the measure of all things. End quote. And of course, that is taking Business Insider's translation as accurate. Groups apparently have formed on social media only to apparently be removed by censors. It seems that anti-work politics is not approved by the Chinese Communist Party. 
researchers also spoke to the Washington Post about the new trend. People realize there is no upward mobility, said Yiching Wang, a PhD student in political science at Boston University who studies propaganda and popular discourse. It's a negative acceptance. My life is like this. It will always be like this. End quote. People were convinced by the discourse of self-development, Yang Zhan, an anthropologist at Hong Kong Polytechnic University, also told the Washington Post. Quote, they were willing to suspend their life in the present in the hope of a better future. That sense of optimism seems to be disappearing. End quote. Can relate. This is, of course, not just a problem in China. Young people in particular, but people in general around the world, are frustrated with their options, and that has resulted in a resurgence of interest both in labor organizing and also in anti-work or post-work politics, a criticism of the idea that work must be the center of one's life. Obviously, this is a trend that I have been watching closely, and I am intrigued to hear it get a new name and new interest as Chinese young people give up on the rat race. Quote, it's more an expression of our demands from society. We want systems to be better and for workers to get more protection, one young worker told the Post. We would, of course, love to hear more about this. So if any of our listeners know more, feel free to reach out to belabored at dissentmagazine.org. If we have listeners in China, please, 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 please tell us. The marijuana legalization movement has been winning pretty big in state legislatures, in large part because it resonates with so many other social issues, critiques of the war on drugs, movements against racial profiling and discrimination in policing. But legalization is just the first step towards remedying the damage of failed drug policies. As the legal weed industry mushrooms across the country, activists and lawmakers are trying to build social equity provisions into their recreational pot legalization legislation to address some of the problems that have resulted from the disproportionate impact of the war on drugs on marginalized communities, particularly Black and Latinx communities. In Connecticut, the state legislature recently approved a marijuana legalization bill that includes a labor peace agreement. It might seem a bit odd to include this in a bill about recreational weed, but unions have been pushing for this kind of language to be incorporated into legalization legislation in different states, knowing that the legal weed workforce is growing fast and is ripe for organizing. A labor peace agreement essentially ensures that a company will remain neutral in the event that workers seek to unionize, while also preventing unions from engaging in strikes and other direct actions. Connecticut Republican lawmakers tried to strip the labor peace measure, but failed, the bill passed by a slim 19 to 17 margin in the Senate. The Connecticut AFL-CIO has called for labor peace agreements to be included in the legislation as part of the equity component of cannabis legalization. Similarly, the United Food and Commercial Workers, who are doing a lot of the organizing of pot workers across the country, issued a statement earlier this year acknowledging, quote, the immense harm done by past cannabis policies, specifically on people of color, unquote, and affirming that it was, quote, committed to working towards reparative justice for those workers who have been impacted by cannabis prohibition in the past. Labor peace agreements and union contracts help ensure that a broad range of workers can benefit from this growing industry, unquote. Currently, the recreational cannabis industry employs some 321,000 people nationwide. Legal sales exceeded $20 billion in revenue last year, and 18 states plus D.C. have now passed recreational marijuana laws. So far, California, New York, New Jersey, and Virginia, 
and pretty soon probably Connecticut, have included labor peace provisions in their laws with the aim of establishing a beachhead for unions like UFCW as they seek to organize bud tenders and other employees in the pot supply chain. These labor peace agreements have also been used in other hospitality-related sectors that involve some sort of state licensing, such as casinos, hotels, and airports. But a labor peace agreement alone hardly guarantees unionization. In fact, they may in many ways hamstring unions because they generally preempt tactics such as picketing, work stoppages, and boycotts. And employers still retain some power to oppose union organizing. As we've reported before on Belabored, employers routinely engage in union-busting tactics and incur many charges of unfair labor practices under the National Labor Relations Act. Yet they typically face few real legal consequences, even when they are found to have committed labor violations by the National Labor Relations Board. In general, the UFCW has had considerable success in organizing weed workers, most recently with the unionization of two Colorado CBD companies, Union Harvest and Nature's Root. But union organizers have also faced legal barriers, including not just unfair labor practice complaints, but also a recent NLRB ruling that bud cultivators were not actually covered by federal labor law because they are supposedly agricultural workers. There is also the looming threat of a lawsuit that would be brought by employers that could invalidate the labor peace clauses in state laws. Now, often unions try to leverage labor peace agreements to negotiate favorable contract provisions down the line, but the long-term effects of these agreements remain to be seen. Will declaring preemptive peace in the pot industry be enough to satisfy marijuana workers, or will they push for more militant tactics when challenging the big bosses of weed? Care work is a centerpiece of the jobs plans that President Biden has rolled out and even of the recovery bills already passed. But will those caring jobs be good jobs? Workers in home care and care facilities are organizing now to make sure of it, whether or not the Biden jobs bills pass Congress. I spoke with Samantha McLeod, a certified nursing assistant from North Carolina who has been involved with organizing for dignified care work. My name is Samantha McLeod. Um, I live in Morganton, North Carolina. It's in the western part of the state. Um, I work in a psych facility um, where we deal with um, really all ranges of patients, but I mainly deal with um, long-term care and COVID patients. We've been um, organizing for, you know, a number of months now um, with uh, Raise Up, and we recently did a town hall which was phenomenal. And um, we brought our petition to some elected officials. Basically, the, the petition goes over, like, the demands that we have, um, which are, you know, safer working environments, um, more pay. Uh, we're chronically understaffed as well, so better staffing ratios and uh, more equipment. And then um, we're also pushing for the American Jobs Act and the right to unionize. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously something that elected officials all the way from local to the president are, are talking about and thinking about now. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the space between sort of we need caring work jobs and, like, what these jobs actually need to look like often sort of gets left to the imagination. So what are some things that some more things that I guess you want to see if we, you know, if they pass the Jobs Act and, and sort of expand caring work, um, what really needs to happen in order to make sure that these are, are good, safe, well-paying jobs that you also get a chance to take a break from sometimes? Really, like, if we're given the chance to unionize, um, it's going to help us get our demands met. I think that 
allowing care workers, allowing us to have a seat at the table whenever mm-hmm. these decisions are made about, like, what constitutes safe working environments or, mm-hmm. you know, just a better work experience. I think that us having a seat at that table will help because we're the ones affected by it. It's hard to to go to work when you know that you're not valued. Um, I often make the comparison that you know we're not we're not getting paid to go into a warehouse and move pallets around or you know move furniture around. We're dealing with with human beings and we're dealing with their thoughts and their feelings and their care. And um, we value our patients and we care about our patients. That's why we're in the field that we're in. Um, and to not have that respect paid back to us is very heartbreaking, and it affects our patients too. I think that um, a lot of a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, it we just don't have a voice on the job. You know, a lot of places are they make it seem where like the uh, the CNAs or the care workers um we're afraid to speak up and we're afraid to to let them know like that we're not being treated fairly because we're afraid for our jobs and um there is a a hierarchy in uh in healthcare you know if you're not a doctor or a psychiatrist or a nurse you know then you're not important and the the truth mm-hmm. of it is is that if the care workers or the CNAs were to, you know, just not work for one day, um, then nothing would, would be able to get done. We're we're the backbone of of healthcare, the CNAs and the care workers are. I'd like to talk about like the understaffing. Just because it's to me, um, like when we were at the town hall, a lot of the officials came up to me and were was talking about like, oh, we knew that like the wages weren't fair and the PPE and stuff since COVID, but we had no idea that understaffing was such an issue. And the reason that it's an issue is because the decision makers, they prioritize profits over people. They want to save money. And um, I know my facility, especially, um, we just built a brand new hospital and they are more worried about the like the beautification of the outside of the hospital than actually paying us a fair wage. So um, then that hurts. But um, so the understaffing, like it's it's a safety issue. It's not just that it makes the work hard. Um, yeah. It's safety. We can't properly take care of our patients when we're understaffed. Um, we have a, a lift that we have to use to get patients out of the bed and we're actually supposed to use two people with this lift, but more often than not, you have to just do it by yourself. Mm. And that risks the employee getting hurt and that risks the patient getting hurt. Me personally, I have 20 patients that cannot feed themselves. And when we're only giving five staff, that's 15 patients that just have to sit there and watch their food get cold and watch other patients be fed. And it's hard. Like, how do you choose which patient that you're going to feed first? And how do you make Mm -hmm. that fair? It's it's rough. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of, you know, the, the teachers unions say, you know, our working conditions are our students learning conditions. And that's really true of you, right? Your working conditions are people's, you know, 
Yeah, yeah, and it's it's not just you know the patients we have now. It's the um, it's it's the future of everybody's healthcare. You know, because mm-hmm. at some point you're everybody is going to need some sort of of healthcare, whether it's long term or home care or just you know in a hospital. Um, so understaffing doesn't just affect us and our current patients. It's if it keeps going, then eventually, you know, I'm going to be affected by understaffing whenever I'm in a facility. That's one of the reasons why we're pushing for the um, American Job Act, because it's going to help us meet these demands. It's going to help us um, get the uh, the staffing that we want, get the uh, the wages that we want. And I do believe that um, you know there's there's people um, in home health care that are making like seven dollars and twenty five cents to do all of this work. And I think that if there was a better incentive, like a wage increase, then Mm -hmm. there would be more people willing to go do that work. So a wage increase would also help an understaffing issue. It goes hand in hand. That was Samantha McLeod, a care worker from North Carolina and part of Raise Up 15. The workers at The New Yorker, Pitchfork, and Ars Technica, all owned by Condé Nast, have a tentative agreement to avert a strike, and it is a testament to what a truly strong and, yes, strike-ready media union can achieve. They have been bargaining for two and a half years to get to this point, and while that sounds and was exhausting, they have a lot to show for it. And as a journalist myself, I'm obviously happy to see standards in this miserable industry get raised. Here to talk with us all about it is Gilly Ostfield. I'm Gilly. I work on the production team at The New Yorker. I am, or maybe I should say was, a member of the bargaining committee for The New Yorker Union. Um, I'm not, <laughs> I suppose <laughs> I still am. Um, I'm just really trying to turn it into the past tense at this point. But um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so congratulations. Very exciting that you guys got to a contract. Um, but give us a little rundown of of what you all won in this contract. Yeah, I mean, I think the headliner is what we did um, with salaries. Um, I think we increased the New Yorkers payroll for union members around like 13%. I mean, that's very like I don't know, insider knowledge, I guess, but some people got raises of up to like 65%. Most people got at least 10%. Um, but yeah, an entry level job at the New Yorker now starts at $55,000 a year. By year three of the contract, it will be 60000 which is um, something that we were fighting really hard to get to. It was a $60,000 floor. So that's a big win. We've got definitions on the work week, including a standardized comp time structure, which is brand new, especially at a place where people work a lot um, of hours. We got caps on our healthcare costs. Um, We have um, really good job security provisions. So we, I mean, we fought really hard to get a just cause clause in our contract. We won that last October. Um, but we also have good protections around layoff procedure. Um, we got a successorship clause in our contract. 
Um, and that means that if somebody buys like a majority stake of the New Yorker, essentially buys the magazine and then hires most of us, that they have to honor our contract too, which is actually not a very easy thing to win in a union contract um, and was one of the last things we won. Um, we also put in place some both, I think, metrics and um, goals basically to increase diversity at the magazine, um, including creating a diversity committee um, and memorializing, um, you know, fair hiring practices. Let's see, what else? We won so much. (laughs) That's, I mean, (laughs) it's an impressive list. Yeah. I guess freelancing was a big one for a lot of people. Um, And we got, we fought really hard to get um, the company to basically give us quite a bit of freedom around freelancing for other magazines um, or just other publications in general. But yeah, I feel like I just can't stress enough how much money we are all going to have in our pockets soon. Um, Yeah, I mean, everyone last night just felt so rich because we're also getting our pay retroactive to the beginning of April. Um, I think everyone was very ready to buy each other drinks. (laughs) But then um, somebody, wow, I forgot this. Somebody called the bar last night anonymously and put $500 on the New Yorker Union's tab. So whoever... Oh, that's lovely. (laughs) That's really nice. If you're a belabored listener, that's great. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Also, if it was you, DM me. Yeah, so I wanted to to drill into a couple of these things because um, a few of them are are pretty important. one, which I don't know if you mentioned, but was the um, banning of non-disclosure agreements for harassment or other such procedures, which is a big deal and something that the Guild has, I think, made a focus of. Yeah? Yeah. Um, it's a huge deal. It was a hard fight, um, surprisingly. So we were actually the first committee at like of all the shops in the News Guild to put this language on the table. Um, we did it. I want to say around like two years ago or or maybe a year and a half ago, we put it on the table, but you know, it was like a little bit theatrical. Our, like our rep, uh, Susan DiCarava. I mean, she is now the president of the guild, but she was our trusty rep at the time (laughs) had like a copy of Ronan Farrow's catch and kill just sitting next to her on that day. I, I think just (laughs) to make a point, but, um, Yeah, basically what this proposal says, or I should say agreement now, is that the company will commit to not use um, non-disclosure agreements in the case of um, sexual harassment across the company. So not even, you know, like we frame this as like a health and safety issue for union members, um, but this is actually something that applies to all of Condé Nast. So not even just the New Yorker, Um, which means that if someone does believe that they were the victim of sexual harassment, they'll never have to sign anything to basically protect a harasser at the company. Um, And we we definitely weren't the first ones to win it. Um, I think it was maybe uh, members at New York Mag who got it first, um, which was very cool. But 
I think this is one of the things that's in our contract that we're really hoping is going to set a new industry standard. I think that's pretty likely that it will, or at least it's starting to do that. So yeah, pretty cool. Pretty historic, I guess. <laughs> yeah, certainly. I mean, it is, is, I love that move of having Ronan Farrow's uh, book right there. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty rich for, for media outlets that report big dramatic stories on sexual harassment yeah. to therefore to then like say, nope, you can't talk about it if it happens to you though. Yeah. That's made it so shocking that the New Yorker fought it so hard for so long. Cause they really did. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I think we've found that with a lot of pieces of our contract and not just that one. So, um, you know, irony aside, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a big deal that we won that. So another one I want to talk about was the these protections around work-life balance, which is obviously a big thing. And obviously, like, it's hard to hold really strictly to hours in the media, but you guys won some interesting stuff around that as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, so this one really was a tricky one for, like, exactly what you say is it's, it is hard to, to track your hours. It's hard to know when to put your work down. Um, and so we essentially, you know, came up with a, a fair comp time structure that is just, you know, it, it does require, I think, thinking about what your work week is and thinking about when you should stop working so that if you don't stop working, you can then take that time a little bit later um, and that essentially that you're entitled to it. And so, you know, for people who work already like 50, 60 hours a week, um, you know, I think this, like not only is it going to improve everyone's work-life balance, but it actually makes your salary worth more <laughs> um, if it's paying for fewer hours. So that was also, I think, one of our last big fights, you know, the company was very resistant to even define the work week, um, <laughs> which was, I think, a bit shocking to our committee when we realized that, that they truly didn't just want to say that there are 40 hours in a work week in our contract. It does say that there are 40 hours in a work week in our contract. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, the, the amount of arguing we did for that, you wouldn't think that um, other people had won uh, limits to the work week 80 years ago. <laughs> the last one of these things that I wanted to um, ask about was the diversity and inclusion provisions and how that relates to money, right? Like, Totally. Yeah. Um, so there, I mean, there are a few pieces of it. Part of it, you know, landed in like what we agreed on for hiring um, in terms of, you know, interviewing 50% of candidates were interviewed will be from like underrepresented groups. And that doesn't include white women, which I think the company really wanted to define as an underrepresented group. But I can just say that white women are definitely overrepresented at the New Yorker already. Um, yeah. As, yeah, in many other places too. Um, but so that's a big piece of it. Um, but there's also, you know, gonna, going to be like a committee that is made up of members of the union and of management who are essentially going to... Um, I mean, A, enforce this, B, track the New Yorker's success at this. The New Yorker also is going to start publishing, um, like statistics about the makeup 
of their magazine, um, which I think is a is already a big step in the right direction. And, and so the New Yorker is, is just actually going to be accountable to, you know, the sort of goals that, that from the beginning, you know, they, they have said that they have the same goals that we do. They want to diversify our workforce. They want it to be, you know, reflective of New York City. I don't know if they've said that. We've definitely said that. <laughs> you know, one of the reasons that this matters so much kind of in tandem with the rest of the contract is just that like for so long, the New Yorker has truly just been a place for, you know, a certain kind of person. Um, Often that kind of person, you know, was maybe somebody straight out of Yale whose parents could help them pay their rent. Um, Because (laughs) certainly like an entry level New Yorker salary didn't come close to to paying for that. Um, so I, I think, first of all, I think that our contract is going to make it much easier for the New Yorker to achieve its, its diversity goals. Um, because as of yesterday, it's like now a really good job, (laughs) um, to to work with the New Yorker. So yeah, I mean, hopefully once, you know, managers at the New Yorker can dust off their shoulders and forget that we threatened to strike the magazine. I think this will be one of the things that they uh, will want to thank the union for working so hard (laughs) at. Yeah. So speaking of threatening to strike the union and all of, or the magazine rather, um, all of these things have taken a long time and a long fight to get to. Um, So I wanted to ask you to sort of take us back to the beginning. Like, how did you get involved with the union and being on the bargaining team? And how does this affect your work? Yeah. I mean, that, (laughs) it like feels like being told to give you my life story. (laughs) (laughs) How long have you been at The New Yorker? Um, I've been at The New Yorker for three years. So I was not a part of the original organizing drive. Um, yeah, the Union went public, I think like right before I started and I, well, so I, I like heard the news right before I started the New Yorker and I was like, whoa, that's so cool. I'm really excited. But then I was like, oh, I, I'm being hired at a, as a permalancer. I'm not even going to get to be part of the union. So I was really bummed out. But then I started and, you know, someone like took me to coffee and they were like, oh no, um, like permalancers are going to be in our union like we negotiated that we won that and that was like the new yorker union's first huge win actually because at the time it was like 20 percent of us um of like union members were employed were like subcontracted through like a third party so we weren't employees of Conan nast we didn't have any benefits we didn't have any paid time off we like didn't get invited to conde holiday parties <laughs> that's always such a thing isn't it it's just like <laughs> What the hell? Yeah. What the hell, bosses, if you're listening? Yeah, what the hell is right. But um, we, uh, there will also no longer be the use of permalances at the New Yorker, in our, like contractually. So that is cool. But, <laughs> um, well, other than the staff writers, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that, maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know. I didn't get super involved right away. Um, but also, like, things were pretty tame. We hadn't even started bargaining yet. Um, I think we'd been bargaining for a few months when um, somebody 
asked me to coffee and I never talked to her before, but she was like, so I heard you're a socialist. Do you want to join? (laughs) Amazing. I really hope this happens to me at some point in my life. It probably will. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'll never forget that. But I was like, yeah, would would love to. Um, And so I joined our mobilization committee, which was something completely different than what it became when we planned a strike. But then I I joined the bargaining committee like maybe a month or two later. Um, You know, somebody left and I replaced her. And then that was just like a crash course in labor law. Um, But that's pretty much been my, like since then, has kind of consumed my life for two years because that's how long it took to bargain this contract. Well, two and a half years actually. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. Things were so different then. Um, you know, doing little actions in the office. Like I look back on them now and I like think they're just like cute. Um, but they were a really big deal at the time, you know, um, one year, like the company didn't want to give us raises, which is like arguably their legal right to do. Um, you know, they're not obligated to um, to give raises like while negotiating a contract. We argued that since, you know, they would do it every year, um, supposedly, um, but they should. So we, you know, had like a little action in the office where everyone had like, a New Yorker cartoon at their desk and the caption on all of them was just, where's my raise? Um, which was very controversial at the time, but yeah, those were like the kinds of, the kinds of things we were doing for a long time was, you know, different kinds of like posters or like kind of, you know, riffing off the New Yorker's style or like sensibility to basically make, our own arguments to, I think a pretty good degree of success. Um, definitely lately. Yeah. I, I, I guess <laughs> if I could just like speed myself up a little bit, we, I mean, things got really heated when we started fighting for just cause. So just cause is, um, basically like the most basic provision in union contract just says you can't be, um, like disciplined or fired without, just cause, meaning a good reason. The New Yorker just did not want to agree to that. Um, They told us it was an existential issue for them, that they felt that if they agreed to it, that it would, uh, you know, diminish the New Yorker's editorial standards. Um, You know, there was a lot of throwing around the, like, the New Yorker's the best magazine in the world. Um, And if we agree to that, we might become second best. And like, if we're second best, we're not anything at all. Um, I mean, pretty wacky arguments, I would say. Second Uh, best to who? What (laughs) is the competition? Well, I, apparently the New Yorker feels quite a bit of competition, um, which has come out at various points in bargaining, but it's, but so for a long time, you know, the, the, the publication we were always being compared to, right, was the New York Times. 
And the New York Times has been a union shop for 80 years and has just has had just cause forever. So we were right. just like, you know, very convenient that you'll compare us to the Times, you know, when it when it works for you, but but <laughs> um, not not when it works for us. You know, they were trying to introduce this this loophole, and it's a loophole that would have swallowed the rule that was, um, you know, if the discipline had anything to do with editorial work or like editorial matters or editorial performance that just cause would not apply. Um, which just means that they, they could claim anything as editorial and then just fire you if they want to. So we fought really hard for it. We, um, you know, the thing I always kind of thought that, we were going to be like one of the last news guild shops to win it. So after, after the New Yorker started fighting us on it, like seven other companies did, I think there was like Buzzfeed and like Wirecutter and Quartz, maybe New York mag, I think too. Um, you know, it was clearly like a concerted effort on the part of management teams to like dilute these union contracts. And like some lawyer was telling them that they like no longer had to agree to this outdated rule. <laughs> We did a lot of work with like a lot of shops across the local to essentially prove them wrong. But um, we were eventually the ones to win it by setting up a virtual picket against the New Yorker Festival on the night that... I remember that one. Yeah. AOC and Elizabeth Warren were like headlining the first night of the festival to talk about the future of progressivism. And, you know, we were all just like, well, that's rich. So we set up a picket for the same time we reached out to both of them and they both, you know, told the New Yorker that they would not participate in the festival unless the New Yorker agreed to just cause by this time, it was like maybe like five days before the festival started and the New Yorker just like totally freaked out. <laughs> um, you know, there were captive audience meetings in like almost every department with David Remnick um, you know, essentially telling us that like what we wanted was impossible. They could never do it. They would never do it. Um, but even if they would or could, they couldn't get it done before the festival, et cetera, et cetera. Like we held our ground, which to be clear actually was terrifying. <laughs> um, like, we, sure. like yeah. the, you know, we, when it seemed, when they made it clear, so they just refunded everyone's tickets to that event without even trying to negotiate with us. Um, and so we were like, wow, okay. Um, then we will extend the picket to Tuesday. And if you don't agree by Tuesday, then like we'll extend it to Wednesday. And essentially like the entire festival was on the brink of falling. Um, and eventually, you know, David Remnick realized that, he wasn't going to be able to talk us out of this and then they would actually have to bargain. And then we spent the next three days on zoom, like staying up all night, <laughs> um, you know, bargaining this and like Condé made it way more complicated than they had to, you know, they, they're very like, we don't do anything with a gun to our heads, but obviously they only ever do anything if there's a gun to their heads. Um, but they wanted to like, feel like they got something out of it too, so that they could like spin it. For their press release. Um, so we ended up like bargaining over two other proposals during that. And like 
yeah, just like meeting with our managers at 4 a.m. on the weekend was like definitely strange, I will say. <laughs> um, you know, last night when we were all, that's a lot. I know when we were all like, whatever, drinking and celebrating, we were passing around this screenshot that someone on the committee has saved on his phone that is just like a Zoom grid screenshot of like everybody's faces just looking so haggard <laughs> um, at like four in the morning, like right before we like went back into the bargaining room. But yeah, we got a deal like an hour before the festival started and went on as planned. It was beautiful. <laughs> That's amazing. Related to all of that and, and to this being terrifying and these kinds of escalations, like places like the New Yorker, again, that these are like the dream job for so many people in the industry. Like it can be really, really hard to pick that fight and be like, what if I lose this dream job? What if it gets me blacklisted everywhere? Um, all of these things. And also like, you know, other people in the industry who are looking at those jobs going like, gee, I'd like to have that job, um, you know, how it might be scared to support. So can you talk a little bit about like what it took to sort of build to that kind of militancy? Yeah. I mean, I I will say that like Connie Nast was a great organizer for us. Like if they hadn't been so slow and like so intransigent and just like, <laughs> just, like yeah, bitchy. <laughs> like, I don't think we would have gotten to that point. Um, I mean, I think it, in terms of like it being a dream job, like I, I do definitely think that's true for a lot of people, but, but once you get here, like you do kind of realize like, Oh, th this is my job. Um, and like, maybe I'm getting paid like, 10 to $20,000 less than like my peers at another magazine or so, you know, and, and then, you know, being part of Conan Nast and realizing that like the New Yorker is like one of Conan Nast's like flagship publications. And like, instead of rewarding us for that, we're essentially punished for it because they know that they can hire people who will like be, who are willing to be paid much less than they're worth or like much less than the job is worth because it's the New Yorker. I mean, jokes on them. Mm -hmm. People are not willing to accept that. And they're in fact willing to strike over it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I honestly, I think it takes just like having a lot of conversations with people who are just like your peers. And like once, you know, like once some of us realize we're worth more and like start talking about it, then other people are like, wait, so am I, you know, like we all shared our salaries like multiple times. I think, you know, some people like discovered wild disparities within their departments and then went and immediately asked for raises. A lot of people got them, um, was I think like the direct result of one of the earlier times we shared our salaries. Um, I think we learned that most people have gotten like actually, big raises only by like leveraging outside offers. And I like, I think like on a psychological level, the fact that you like have to apply for another job to like get a raise here is like not great <laughs> or that it's like one of the only like methods, I guess is what I mean. But yeah, I mean, in terms of like building to that militancy, it's almost 
Like, I sometimes I also wonder because so many people started at the New Yorker, like during the pandemic, like things were already contentious. Like we, we started planning for a strike like months before we took the vote, like just in case. Um, but there were people who had not been here very long who, you know, voted yes with us or, you know, um, we're ready to walk out at a moment's notice, like last week. Um, and I, and I think part of it is that we did, you know, like take our campaign public and like people are watching and like, there is, there was so, it was just an incredible amount of public support for a fight. Like I could like go on and on about that and about how much it has like mattered to people like within our unit to see. And also that, you know, freelancers, like not only did they pledge to honor our picket line, but they did a whole bunch of organizing on their own to support our strike threat. Readers and subscribers really supported us too. Like, you know, (laughs) I think at a certain point, even just, I don't know. I guess I don't know exactly um, like how to synthesize what I'm feeling about it. Um, partly I think I'm just like still a little bit shocked that we won. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's amazing, right? Because it really did sort of become this, this focal point for a lot of people in journalism. And like, I've never written for the New Yorker. P.S. I'm not a subscriber, although maybe I will be now that they've got a good contract. Uh, Maybe I'll write for them someday, but like, you know, we all paid attention to this in a way that, I mean, I pay attention to everything because this is what I do, but like a lot of people who were not otherwise sort of, you know, following the ups and downs of union struggles, I think we're following this because it was the New Yorker. So yeah, I mean, one of the the slogans, right, was that we can't eat prestige, those signs like in the perfect New Yorker font that really um, stuck out, right? Because it's it's true, right? That like, the reality is that journalism is becoming a luxury product and that it's produced by people who are barely making ends meet is, you know, it's a real contradiction that I think people really related to. Yeah. And I I mean, I think that was like the essential message of our campaign, right? Is that like journalism shouldn't be a luxury product. You know, like it's, um, like we're, we're told at the New Yorker, like our work is so important. Like it matters so much. We have to give everything. And we do, like, we all work really, really hard to make the magazine like as perfect as we possibly can. Um, and like, I would not disagree with like New Yorker managers when they say that editorial standards are so much higher at the New Yorker (laughs) because I I think in a lot of respects they are, but it's like that contradiction makes itself right. Like we, um, you know, if we work so hard at something that matters so much, like why isn't that reflected in our paychecks? And like, that's not a hard thing to convince someone um, when they are just like, you know, living with several roommates in the middle of a pandemic Um you know, working from their bedroom while Zooming with, like, a manager in Connecticut, you know? Like, it's just, like, 
that's radicalizing whether you have a union or not. <laughs> like the pandemic was like so hard for so many people in so many different ways, but like yeah. it, I think it was also like very eye opening for people yeah. in terms of just like their own worth and like their, you know, the status of their working conditions. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, just like the disparity between like the workers and the executives at the company, which is just like, you know, cartoonish, honestly. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, for sure. And you guys really took advantage of that with the rally at Anna Wintour's house um, with like this, this sort of strike countdown. It was just like, yeah, we're going to Anna Wintour's house. Um, yeah. Honestly, for me, that was like just pure catharsis. <laughs> like... <laughs> we have just been so frustrated for so long and like feeling like everything we try to do was just like totally stymied and to just show up at Anna's doorstep and just like yell at her or yell at her house was like, I found it like healing. (laughs) Um, And a lot of people showed up and that was cool because like an hour before was like the biggest storm I've seen all year. Um, it was very, very crazy weather. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, convenient for us that Anna Wintour is just like such a easy villain, I guess. I mean, (laughs) there is a whole movie about it. There is an entire movie about it. Um, (laughs) you know, there were other Somebody made a joke. Somebody at the News Guild was like, what would people think if we got, like, devil horns for the (laughs) picket? Um, We did not end up doing that. Um, But obviously, I think it was, like, attention-grabbing. You know, it turns out there are plenty of people across the News Guild who also wanted to go yell at Anna Wintour's house. (laughs) And they came. (laughs) Um... But I mean, it was also, you know, like, I feel like in a lot of the stories that were like written about it, you know, it was pointed out that like the New Yorker is the one publication that like Anna Wintour doesn't oversee. And like, that's true. Um, We have much more editorial independence than other publications at Connie Nast. But like still, she has like gotten multiple promotions just over the course of the pandemic when like all the rest of us have had. Like some of us had salary cuts. I mean, not me. I did not make enough. Most union members did not make enough money to have their salaries cut. I'll just say that. Yeah. But like, you know, she has been promoted into position. Like we're all just like, we didn't even know you could get any higher at this company. And yet like there she goes being promoted again. So just like the dissonance between like that and then, you know, telling us without telling us that they like can't afford to pay us. Um. I think made it a logical target. I think it probably also scared every other manager of the New Yorker who didn't want to be next. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I, yeah, I think that's why Conde got so freaked out about it. They, you know, sent an email to us telling us that what we were doing was unacceptable um, and likening it to like uh, threats and harassment against journalists, which I'll, yeah. I'll just yeah. leave it there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but one of the other things too is the the sort of the strike magazine, right? That you guys were like, well, we'll still put out a product. We'll just put it out for ourselves. I thought that was such a like, I mean, A, like a power move, but also like 
a real demonstration of like, we're actually the ones who make sure that those exacting editorial standards are met. Totally. So I, I mean, I, I thought people would like it. Um, and I, I hope we still have a way to share some of the material. Um, I think probably we, we will have a way, but I mean, like people loved it. The company hated it. Like they, this is like one thing that is not like, you know, we're not picketing your house with this magazine. Like you don't need to be scared of it, but somehow it was like maybe the scariest thing to them and like might have been like a last straw to like close the deal. <laughs> That's great. Actually. I love yeah, hearing that. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, Genevieve did the art. She actually like works in the covers department. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, you know, you look at that strike cover and it just looks like a New Yorker cover. Like, um, and I think that they must have had a moment looking at that and realizing that everything else we put out would be just as good as the actual New Yorker magazine. And like, that scared them. Like they, yeah, I, I mean, it's exactly as you say, it just like, it really does show that like, we are the ones who make the New Yorker um, and we can like we can take that away from you and do it ourselves and you won't see a dime. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Proving that the bosses are actually not that important. Yeah. Um, yeah. So to wrap up, is there anything else you want people to know or, or things that people in the media or other sort of dream jobs um, can take away from what y'all learned? I mean, I would say share your salary. Um, I would also say that like the New Yorker union owes like, an enormous debt to all the other unions in media right now who have like supported us so much and like we're definitely really ready to like be out there for everyone else um I think we were trying really hard to like look beyond just ourselves with this contract um yeah I, I not, <laughs> to end on such an earnest note <laughs> I don't know. Hey, we're I, here for Ernest. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I think like this fight lasted so long and like meant so much to so many of us. Um, and I think like the idea that our fight will like mean something to people even outside the magazine is like very nice. Um, so yeah, I will just say that we are here to help. And we have a lot of plans for digital picket lines. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And that was Geely Ostfield, an organizer with the New Yorker Staff Union. And now it's time for... Arg. I wish I'd written that. Where we talk about the pieces that we read and liked, but alas, did not write. My pick for Arg is Culture War in the K-12 Classroom by Jennifer Berkshire. It's a deep dive into the blackboard jungle of education politics today. 
You might have noticed that the right-wing media these days is awash with denouncements of so-called critical race theory, and Republican lawmakers in Washington and many states are churning out policy agendas aimed at stamping out the supposed left-wing brainwashing and socialist spiritual pollution in our public schools. Berkshire's piece is not about labor per se, but she features the stories of several school teachers who have been targeted, smeared, and even threatened with dismissal by the right-wing moral crusaders. These anti-intellectual attacks put teachers in an extraordinary position, jeopardizing their intellectual autonomy and putting them on the front lines of defending the integrity of public education writ large. Berkshire writes, for example, about Misty Crompton, a middle school teacher in Derry, New Hampshire, not exactly a hotbed of identity politics, who was caught up in a right-wing smear campaign and became a symbolic target for lawmakers who are driving to expand private school vouchers and ban teaching of so-called divisive concepts in public schools, such as racism or sexism. The idea seems to be that merely teaching kids that these things exist may somehow sow more social division than actual racism or sexism itself. Earlier this year, Iowa high school teacher Nick Covington became the target of a witch hunt led not by lawmakers, but by parents in his own school community. Berkshire writes, quote, the trouble started in January when Covington streamed live news reports of the Capitol riot in his European history and economics class. A parent called the school and claimed that Covington had directed students to his personal social media account, where he'd called Trump supporters Nazis, all of which Covington vehemently denies, unquote. We see a pattern unfolding across the country in which conservatives insist that schools are rife with left-wing propaganda and educators who care about issues like racial equity or LGBTQ plus rights are portrayed as caricatured avatars of liberal critiques of structural racism and other social ills. This is embodied in things like the New York Times 1619 Project, which has inspired right-wing rifts on said project, such as the 1776 Project, aimed at teaching kids patriotism. Cornell professor Naliway Rooks is quoted in the article explaining that the classroom panic is fueled by, quote, the idea of the past as a refuge. The message is, let's get rid of the parts and the people in public education that we don't like, unquote. To be clear, conservatives do have some reason to be a bit scared. Since the 1960s, both K-12 and higher education reform efforts have sought to diversify the curriculum and at least attempt to tell some of the hard truths about issues like segregation, imperialism, and slavery. But the picture that right-wing pundits like Tucker Carlson paint about elementary school teachers indoctrinating kids with wokeism is a funhouse mirror reflection of the nightmares of conservative white Americans who have been pumped full of fear of becoming an oppressed minority. The attacks on the curriculum and the attacks on teachers go hand in hand. Educators are seen as agents of the culture war, and in a way, they probably are the closest thing that either side of the culture war has to foot soldiers in the battle over what kind of information, values, and ideas our children's minds should be filled with. They are not only civil servants, but often members of very active liberal or left-leaning unions, both things that conservatives really hate. And teachers may be the greatest source of exposure to the world outside of Fox News and the church for many of the kids who are coming from more conservative families. A parallel battle has been unfolding over the structure of public education. Teacher unions have been under siege from so-called education reformers, and that includes both liberals and conservatives, who want to deregulate education and impose neoliberal interventions like charter schools. Today's attacks on teachers are by far more ideological. However, the objective seems basically the same. Behind these Republican lawmakers' demonization of K-12 education as and progressive curricula lies a more pragmatic and sinister agenda. They just don't believe in public education. 
They want to undo the incremental progress in desegregating schools over the past several decades and defund, resegregate, and privatize the public education system. The fear-mongering about children being indoctrinated is just the cherry on top. The culture warriors and state legislatures know how to mobilize a rabidly angry crowd, and so culture war rhetoric is effective that way. And they may or may not believe their own rhetoric, yet they certainly know that an inclusive, diverse public education system is antithetical to their reactionary worldview. So the main goal is beyond any sort of battle of ideas. It's more of a battle against a basic social institution. I can't imagine the kind of stress and emotional labor that these teachers have to endure as they navigate the day-to-day work of their actual teaching, plus the political slime that gets hurled at them relentlessly from people whose only stake in public education is to weaponize it in order to push their reactionary agenda. This brings me back to the wave of teacher strikes that we saw a couple of years ago. Many of the teachers who were rallying at those state houses in organizing strikes were motivated to speak out about basic issues of low pay and the massive chronic underinvestment that they had witnessed in their school districts. Those might be seen as bread and butter issues, but they are ideological in a way. And this time, teachers are under siege for ostensibly different reasons, much more explicitly ideological, but they're still being vilified for what they represent. They're embodiments of an education system that, at its best, encourages young people to look beyond the often stifling insularity of their neighborhoods and families, an education system that challenges conventional wisdom and stereotypes and makes young people aware of what they don't know about the world and what they need to learn more about and speak out on. People striving to destroy the system will cynically claim they are doing so, quote, or the children, unquote. Whether they're shadowboxing the boogeyman of critical race theory, or seeking to nefariously resegregate schools through vouchers, or working to ensure that the schools in the poorest, least white districts get the overcrowded classrooms and battered textbooks. Teachers who are caught in the crossfire of this so-called culture war know that they're not being targeted just because of what they teach, but because of what they stand for. And hopefully teachers and their unions and the communities they serve stand by them when they come under attack in the war on schools. Continuing a theme from earlier in today's show, today I wanted to talk about rest for ARG, specifically by a piece by friend of the show you haven't met yet, Amelia Horgan. Amelia is the author of a new book, Lost in Work, out soon from Pluto Press. And don't you worry, we are planning a full interview with her for the podcast this summer. But in the meantime, I wanted to draw your attention to her piece at the New Statesman titled The Politics of Everyday Life, Rest. The piece is part of a series which, in full disclosure, I should note that I have also contributed to. But as usual, since I love her work all of the time, Amelia's piece is particularly good and particularly relevant. She writes, quote, rest often appears to us as the most natural part of the day and as such a universal and historically unvarying experience. But rest has also in recent times become an object of social concern and a source of personal anxiety and increasing attention is paid to the conditions that shape it. There are recurring panics about the inadequacy of our current patterns of rest to do with amount and quality. Will the blue light emanating from your phone stop you sleeping? Will staying too long at work make your children hate you? Will stress make you bald? End quote. But rest is a specific thing beyond just not being at one's waged job. Rest is distinct from leisure and distinct from sleep. Quote, leisure and sleep can induce feelings of restfulness, but I want to argue for the existence of rest as a distinct activity, or rather a distinct form of inactivity, one characterized by an open-endedness or indeterminacy. 
And rest, she notes, is not simply a matter of individual choice. This is what makes it political. She writes, quote, of course, we can say that people ought to have worth that does not depend on their outward busyness. But the reality is that contemporary society strongly attaches worth to productivity materially through wage compensation and ideologically through the background belief that your social standing is first and foremost the product of your effort. Such public discussion of the merits of rest can even function as disavowals, with modern-day Stakhanovites proudly confessing that they find it hard to rest because of the strength of their commitments to work. They are champions of purposeful rest, edging past the competition when it comes to tasteful beach retreats or mindfulness seminars. A little rest can be permitted as a treat, but only for the benefit of future productivity, only instrumentally. Bill Gates, for example, meditates to improve his concentration for the rest of his work. It is not enough to say that we are worth more than our productivity. To defend restful activity for individuals, we must more thoroughly politicize it. End quote. And so she asks, how might we take action to create better inaction? People do, of course, need time off of work, but that time also must be free from caring responsibilities. Housework is not, in fact, restful. And then she notes, there's the way the precarity of work these days affects the quality of our rest. She writes, quote, anyone who has felt the stomach churning butterflies practically in your throat, Sunday scaries, the dread filled anticipation of the return to work the following day, can tell you that the quality of rest is determined by what comes next. Precarious work extends the compromised rest that this anxiety brings into more and more of the week as workers are expected to be ready to work in line with demand rather than keeping regular hours. 37% of all UK workers are given less than a week's notice of shift patterns, and 7% of working adults are told less than 24 hours in advance. How we work shapes how we rest. End quote. And then, of course, there's the fact that for some of us, idleness is viewed with suspicion. She notes that sick pay in the UK lags behind the rest of the world, and for us in the US, of course, so many of us have no sick pay at all. And there's more, quote, the punitive regime of benefit sanctions intensified under government austerity programs and a culture of disbelief towards the sick and disabled. And the overlapping of work at home these days, whether one is, quote, the nine to five office worker checking emails at home or the bar worker ensuring they're the first to respond to a spare shift on the group chat, end quote, means that time away from work is rarely fully restful. So fighting for rest is necessary, even if it also sounds like a contradiction in terms. She concludes, the harms and petty cruelties of how we are permitted and how we permit ourselves to rest are the products of existing relationships of power in our society. The amount of time we have to ourselves and the quality of that time are conditioned by the power and status we hold. Challenging this requires fundamental changes in those relations of power, but it also means demanding decent rest as well as decent work, creating durable sites of sociability and community beyond our workplaces, not just more free time, but better free time. That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on delivery workers and care workers, labor peace and legal weed work, media unions, and very importantly, not working in the age of COVID-19. 
Thanks as always go to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis and now Colin Kinneborough for editing us, and most importantly, of course, to all of you for having supported us for what feels like a million years, but in reality is about, goodness, seven? <laughs> Thank you for sharing us with your friends, for tweeting about us, talking about us, writing to us, sharing your stories with us. We especially would appreciate it if you haven't already, if you could rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts, it does actually help us find new listeners. And special thanks to all of you for years now who have been sustaining members of the podcast, either at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored or on Patreon with those fancy rewards that we've got now at patreon.com slash belabored. We, of course, understand and are committed to bringing you a free podcast. But if you want to sign up at Patreon, we are stepping up our Patreon-only content with some exclusive interviews, and there are some gorgeous Molly Crabapple worker portraits for the highest tier. You can, as always, find out more on the Descent website and find all of our back episodes at descentmagazine.org slash belabored. If you want to share your story of work under coronavirus or hopefully vaccinated against it, you can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are a journalist or a deliverista, a nurse or unemployed, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. Thank you so much for listening. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.